Okay, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for the riches of your grace. Lord, we could never merit anything from you. And so, Lord, we thank you that you have freely given us all things in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that he is our source of acceptance. He's our source of righteousness. Lord, he is our source of life. And yet, sadly, many spend their entire time here on earth looking for life in all the wrong places and never really finding it. Because as we're going to see when we get over further in Colossians, it's hidden in Christ. And if that's where it's hidden, that's where it is to be found. Lord, we thank you that when it comes to the Christian life, there is nothing else we need that has not already been given to us in Christ. And Lord, may he become our focus. May our lives not be caught up in what we're trying to do for him, but Lord, may we be open for him to do his work in and through us. So that others would not be attracted to us, but that others might be attracted to him. Lord, I thank you just for the way that you uh, used Paul many years ago to pen this letter. And just for the, the meat that it contains. That can just change us in so many different ways and so Lord I just I pray that your Holy Spirit would guide my words this day that he would do his work in each person's heart today and Lord that we would come away from here uh, just with a deeper understanding of what it means to be in Christ for us in his precious name we pray amen okay we're going to be continuing through Colossians I'll try to get to a pretty good stopping point today because next Sunday, of course, we have our prayer Sunday. So it'll be two weeks then until we get back into Colossians. And Marilyn told me for some reason last week's lesson never ended up on the internet. I'll have to check and see why it's not. Yeah, I'll have to go back and see what happened. Uh, I don't know if it didn't... It didn't get to Mark or what happened because I know I, I sent it on Monday to him. Uh, so uh, I'll try to look into that today and try to get it and this week's uh, put on there. Of course, we're as we're going through this letter, I'm constantly going back to the theme. And as I've uh, pointed out repeatedly, I believe that when the New Testament writers sat down to to write one of their letters, there was a reason for it. There was something they were trying to accomplish. Uh, they weren't just, hey, I need to write a letter and uh, sit down and just write uh, about nothing. Uh, there generally was something that prompted the letter because again, writing materials and the whole process was much more involved uh, than it is for us. You know, we sit down at a computer and we type something out and it really doesn't cost as much anything. Uh, 
They had to get the paper. They had to do the writing. Uh, getting it sent was a huge chore. Uh, Paul was in Rome when he wrote this. The church in Colossae was 1,200 miles away. Somebody had to, there wasn't a postal system. Somebody had to take that letter, traveled 1,200 miles uh, to give it to the church. And so there's a reason why he sat down to write. Now we pointed out that I believe that the, and most of the uh, commentaries I've looked at believe that, you know, this was like much of the New Testament prompted by false teaching. Uh, there were those coming into the church uh, promoting false doctrine. We don't know exactly which, what the doctrine was in the sense that we have no uh, extra biblical evidence or archaeological finds regarding this site to know much about uh, Colossae. We just have to kind of put it together by what Paul says. But from what Paul says, we can surmise, and I think accurately, that there were those who were challenging the sufficiency of Christ. They certainly... Uh, you know, it was okay to believe that Christ was their Savior, but they needed something else for life. And as we get over further into the letter, we'll see some of the things that Paul counteracts that helps us understand some of the things that were being proposed. But uh, if I were to choose a theme, which I have done, <laughs> a theme that pulls this whole letter together, it would be that the Christian life finds its sole source in Jesus Christ, who is preeminent over all things. Now, you know, in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews talks about the milk of the word and the meat of the word. And I'm, I'll tell you, Colossians is very much about meat. <laughs> it's not a book of milk. And therefore, it's a lot of what's in Colossians isn't necessarily simple to understand. At times you're going to have to uh, meditate on some of this and wrestle with it. And uh, some of these things, it may take a while for you to understand. And that's why I do want you to feel free to ask me questions or something as I'm going along. Okay, I've been a Christian for 64 years. I've been teaching for 40 years. And it's easy for me to see things that are so, seem so clear to me and think that I'm conveying that clarity. Uh, you know, I had to remind myself uh, when I was at the Bible Institute that when I walked into the classroom, things that may have taken me 40 years to understand, I walk in there and I want to share it with the students and then grab hold of it. Now, some of them were sharper than me. Maybe it won't take them 40 years. But, you know, it's, it's easy to look at somebody who's standing in a place like I am and then struggle and say, well, I just don't understand this. Well, there's nothing wrong with you not understanding it at this point. Uh, it may take time. It may take hearing it a number of times. And it may at times take hearing another little piece that brings it all together. 
have often likened the study of the scriptures to like taking a jigsaw puzzle and pouring it out. And you know that all those pieces form a picture. And that if you take time and you examine the pieces, it will ultimately come together. Now some people say, ah, forget it. It ain't worth the effort. They put all the pieces back in the box, shut the box up, and they never see the picture. And unfortunately, some people do that with the scriptures. They start reading the scripture. They say, oh, it just doesn't make sense to me. Boom. You know, and they quit. But I assure you that if you stay in the Word and you keep examining these various pieces of the picture, they will come together. And what's exciting is sometimes when you pick up that one piece that brings a huge chunk of it together. I know when uh, we were in... uh, Waukesha and I was teaching Sunday school there I know I had a woman come up uh, one Sunday she said you know some of the things you've just dealt with has suddenly brought a lot of passages that I didn't understand to clarity passages that I had memorized but I never really understood and so suddenly now they make sense She and her husband had been missionaries. (laughs) They had served the Lord on another field. And yet she acknowledged there were some of these things that didn't make sense to her. And finally they came together. Now I, I do that just to encourage you that if we're going through this and some of it you're struggling with and some of it doesn't uh, make f- full sense to you, just take away from here what you can take away. And trust the Lord to work over time uh, to, uh, to bring it all to greater clarity. And He will. You know, if you don't just give up, if you hang in there, the Lord wants nothing more than for you to understand these things. But it, it takes sometimes life experience. It takes uh, seeing other passages of Scripture to bring it all together. Now, you know, we've gone through, you know, Paul's opening salutation. We've gone through his uh, prayer of thanksgiving and his prayer of intercession, which we said revolve around the completed work of Christ. When Paul talked about his petitions for them, it wasn't that God would give them anything they didn't already have. It was for them to grow in their knowledge and understanding. And that's what you and I need. God will never provide you with anything else for the Christian life that you don't have at this very moment. That you haven't had since the moment you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But what he will do is develop your knowledge and understanding of those truths. So that they begin to impact your very life. Now, we moved last week into the third section of the letter, which focuses on the sufficiency of Christ. And his sufficiency is seen in his preeminence over all things. That there is no one higher than him. There is no one who could possibly add to the work that he has uh, already accomplished. 
You know, and this is, is an important place to start. Now, as I pointed out last week, a lot of people want to jump over to the part of the letter where it talks about the Christian life. I want something that's going to change my life today. The Christian life is the Christian life. <laughs> it's Christ's life flowing through you. And if you want your daily life to change, it starts with a growing knowledge and understanding of Christ. Coming to really know Him. Now, I pointed out that knowing Him goes beyond just knowing facts about Him. But it does involve knowing facts about Him. It starts there at times, but then it it grows beyond that. We are never to be satisfied with just knowing a lot of facts about Christ. We really want to know Him in an intimate, personal way. But we start with, with these facts, which I, I'm hoping that these facts help us understand why He is so worthy of us really investing the time and effort to get to know Him. As we come to see who he really is. Now last week, we started in on a section that's known as the Christ Hymn. Uh, and we got into the, the first strophe of it. Uh, it's called a Christ Hymn because it is rhythmic prose. And it follows the form of uh, New Testament hymns. And as I said, some uh, say, well, we don't know whether Paul wrote this from scratch or whether he drew upon an existing hymn. I personally think he drew upon an existing hymn. And in doing so, it's serving as a reminder to the Colossian believers, look, this is not new information I'm giving you. This, you know, you've sat in church and you've sung these songs. You've sung about Christ. You've sung about who He is. Have you really, really taken hold of the reality of who Christ is? And the first trophy talks about, first of all, His relationship to God. That He is the image of the invisible God. That, uh, and we talked about the fact that I think F.F. F. Bruce said, you know, in him the invisible became visible. Everything that God is was packaged in Christ. That's why when Thomas asked Christ about the Father, Christ says, you know, have you been with me so long and you still don't understand that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you know what I'm like, you know what the Father's like. And so he's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn before all creation. And we talked about the word firstborn doesn't have to do with him being created. It has to do with his position. The first, the position of firstborn in that day got, you know, was priority of position. Esau sold his firstborn position to Jacob. Um, uh, we find, find that uh, Reuben lost his firstborn position to the two sons of Joseph. Firstborn is a position of, of prominence. 
And when it comes to creation, all around us, Christ holds the position of firstborn over it. Uh, we find that he, this is rightfully his position because all things were created in him. Or in him all things were created. He was the source from which all things came. Heaven and earth, the whole universe, came out of Christ. Uh, he is the one that created it. He was the, it didn't just, wasn't just sourced in him. He was the agent of that creating, creation. He brought it all about. <clears throat> and everything that was created was not only created by him, it was created for him. This universe belongs to Christ. It's rightfully his. Now so often when we think of Christ, what do we do? We think of him as our Savior, and we'll think of him as the Son of God. But do we really stop and think of who Christ is? And if the Colossian believers recognized truly who Christ was, why would they think there would be anyone that could add to what he had provided? If we really grasp the totality of Christ... Now we got up last week to the transitional link in this hymn. And we had to stop then because of time. And I'll pick up there now. Verse 17. He indeed is before all things. And they all cohere in him. He is also the head and body of the church. Now it's a transitional link because it moves us. From his relationship to original creation to his relationship to the new creation, to the church. It transitions us. But it starts by stating, and he is before all things. His primacy in relationship to creation comes from the fact that he's before all things in every way possible. He's before all things in existence. He's before all things in importance. He's before all things in authority. He's before all things in eternality and in sovereignty. In every possible way, he is before all things. There is absolutely no one who is more significant than him in the realm of creation. And his primacy goes on to include the fact that, and, you know, and they all cohere in him. You know, we live in a world today where many don't want Christ to exist. Many want to discard him. But Paul tells us, that Christ, this very day, is what holds all this together. You walk outside, you look around, and you look at this universe, what you can see. And Paul says, Christ is the one who's holding it together. That if you took Christ out of the picture, 
everything would cease to exist. This world would be, no longer be here. We would no longer be here. He is the force that holds everything together. He didn't just bring it into being. He holds it together. Stop and think how awesome he is. You know, we so many think of him simply in terms of the way you see him in the Gospels. You know, in his humiliation, when he has set aside the use of his divine attributes for his own benefit, and he has come and lived here under human limitation. That's what people think of Jesus. But Paul says he's so much more than that. He's the source of the whole creation around us. He started it. It was created for him. He is the one that holds it all together. And from that, Paul flows into his relationship to the church. The new creation. He is also the head of the body. The church. So, having established that Christ is the one who holds the universe together, he said, this one who is holding everything around us together is the head of the church. Of course, he's using the word church in a universal sense here. The, uh, the body of Christ, all believers. And the church, in the church, which is seen in Scripture as a living organism, he is its head. Now, W.H. Griffith Thomas points out that there are three great spiritual principles involved in Christ's headship. One is, as our head, he is the source of spiritual life. Just like my physical body cannot live without my head, <laughs> the church has no life apart from Christ. He's the source of life for the church. And he's the source of life for us as individual believers. We'll see that as we go on. Right now, he's looking at Christ in relationship to the church. Later, we're going to get to looking at the new, new man and, and where Christ fits into all that. But, you know, he's our source of spiritual life. Secondly... Thomas points out, he's the guarantor of all spiritual unity. Now we, we hear a lot of talk about the need for unity in the body of Christ. And I agree. <clears throat> but it needs to be the right kind of unity. Unity in and of itself isn't always good. If you go back to Genesis chapter 11. The Tower of Babel. Man was unified. <clears throat> <clears throat> and God looks down and says, it is not good. This unity they have is not good. Why? <clears throat> because it was unity that stood in opposition to God. We can be unified on things that are very displeasing to God. How do we become unified in a way that pleases God? When we are unified under Christ's headship. When he is the one that is guiding us all. I mean, Jonelle and I, our prayer in our marriage. 
is that we have a oneness that flows from sharing his mind, his view. We don't just want oneness. We want a oneness that flows from from him. And Christ is the head of the church and if, if, if we would truly let him guide us, there would be unity because he's not going to guide us in two different directions. And when Joe and I are praying about certain things, we know that, that the Lord isn't going to give us two different answers. We can both be wrong, but we can't both be right if we have differing views. And until we can come together and know that this is of the Lord, we don't let it rest. We keep, and, and, and we also don't move forward in something that we aren't convinced is of Him. So He is a guarantor of all spiritual unity. And as our head, He is the supreme spiritual authority. There is no one higher than Him. He holds the ultimate position within the church. Now, this brings us to the second strophe of this hymn. Now, his position of, pre- of preeminence in the realm of the new creation as its head is only right given the fact that, first of all, he is its beginning. Just like the original creation was sourced in Christ, so too is the new creation. Griffith Thomas writes, Christ is the great energizing origin of everything connected to the church. It all comes from him. Paul goes on to tell us, not only is he the beginning, but he's the firstborn from the dead. Now, back in verse 15, we saw that when it talked about him being the firstborn of all creation, that it was not an issue of, of uh, you know, him being created, but a, a, uh, pos- uh, an issue of position. And I think you have to maintain the same meaning here. Now, of course, Paul has said that Christ is the beginning of the new creation, but he holds the firstborn position over the new creation. Just like he holds the highest position over creation, he holds the highest position over the new creation. He holds the position of a firstborn son. This position of firstborn from the dead, Paul tells us, gives him preeminence over all things. Now, uh, again, he basically is seen here as holding preeminence over all things in both realms. He holds preeminence over the the, uh, original creation. He holds preeminence over the new creation. It is all under him. And from that relationship... Paul flows into Christ's role as reconciler. 
having established that Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the firstborn from the dead, Paul now goes on to state, in him was pleased all the fullness to dwell. In him was all pleased all the fullness to dwell. Now most commentators that I've read approach verse 19 here from the standpoint that it's stating that the uh, <clears throat> that it pleased the Father for all the fullness of the Godhead to dwell in Christ. And when we get over to chapter 2 verse 9, Paul will state that. There he will state it <clears throat> in relationship to the fact that of our completeness in Christ, that since Christ possesses all the fullness of the Godhead, that we're complete in Him. But I don't believe that's what Paul is saying here. I think Paul has a broader meaning. A broader meaning. Now, he's just established in the opening strophe that Christ is the image of the invisible God. And we said that that means that in him the invisible was made visible. He's already established in the first trophy that everything God is is packaged in Christ. That the fullness of God is in Christ. After establishing that, he went on to establish that Christ is the firstborn over all creation. That the fullness of creation is in, involved in Christ. And then he went on to deal with the new creation. Another thing, what Paul is saying here is that all fullness was pleased to dwell in him. All the fullness of God, the fullness of creation, the fullness of new, the new creation. It is all in Christ. And therefore, he becomes the perfect one to reconcile all things. Because all fullness is in him. Verse 20 says, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Now we might do well to pause for a moment and deal with what it means to reconcile something. Lewis Berry Chafer writes, Reconciliation means that someone or something is thoroughly changed and adjusted to something which is a standard, as a watch may be adjusted to a chronometer. Now, in the human realm, generally reconciliation involves both parties making adjustments to move towards each other. You know, if, if a husband and wife, are, are, their marriage is, is divided, they're reconciled by them both moving. 
generally there's a compromise on both part uh, on the part of both parties. But this isn't the case with biblical reconciliation. God's immutable. God can't compromise. God cannot change. Immutable means he's unchanging. In fact, since he is perfect, any change would be a negative thing. (laughs) He would have to move away from perfection in order to change. And in reality, it's not that God needed to be reconciled either to man or the world. The world and mankind needed to be reconciled to God. And so biblical reconciliation is the process by which God brings about a change in the world and in man that opens the door for him to be reinstated to a proper relationship with him. Now again, Lewis Berry Chafer writes, the word reconciliation is often invested with a meaning which does not belong to it. Its root meaning is that a change has been wrought from the position formerly occupied. A world which is reconciled to God, and in 2 Corinthians 5.19, Paul talks about the world being reconciled to God. A world reconciled to God does not mean that all the world are saved, but rather that their estate before God is changed to the extent that the necessity of condemnation is removed by reason of Christ's death for them. The way is open for their salvation when it was not thus before open. So reconciliation doesn't mean the same as salvation. Reconciliation has to do with the barrier that stood between us and God. That barrier being dealt with, which now opens the door for us to be reinstated to God. But that involves, you know, accepting the uh, gracious gift that God has offered to us. Reconciliation just deals with the barrier. He goes on to write, it represents the manward effect and value of the cross. And it's interesting that the Old Testament term most closely related in meaning to the New Testament word reconcile is the word atonement. In fact, the word atonement doesn't appear anywhere in the epistles. Reconciliation is probably the most closely related to it. Now, uh, W.E. Vine writes, It is the divine purpose on the ground of the work of Christ accomplished on the cross to bring the whole universe, except rebellious angels and unbelieving man, into full accord with the mind of God. And so in order to do that, to bring the whole universe... In accord with God, God saw fit to place the fullness of all things in Christ and use Him as the agent to bring all things together. And I think it's significant here that man is not the only one in need of reconciliation. 
Sin has impacted all of creation. I'm just finishing teaching through Revelation in a Bible study on Sunday nights. And you know, sin is not present in heaven, but the impact of sin is. As you go through the book of Revelation and you see all that's going on in the throne room of God during the tribulation, you see that heaven is impacted by the sin that's in the universe. And so, yes, mankind needs to be reconciled to God, but creation needs to be brought back under Him. And Christ is the one chosen to bring it all back under His, under Him. But reconciliation required more than just the fullness of all things being placed in Christ. It required more than just the fullness of God and the fullness of creation and the fullness of the new creation being placed in Him. Because of sin, there was this state of conflict that needed to be resolved and the blood of Christ was the only way to resolve it. It was spilled for the reconciliation of all things. He says, whether things in heaven or things on earth. His blood made it possible for there to be peace between the two realms. Now, from where you and I stand, you know, it's easy to question, you know, how have things been reconciled? The world that you and I live in, day to day is still very much in conflict with God creation is still under the turmoil of sin I don't know if you noticed it but things are not Edenic out there we're still under the turmoil of sin how can it therefore be stated here that Christ reconciled all things I like the way William Kelly responds to that. He says, morally all is done. The price is paid. The work is accepted. So that here too we may say all things are ready. God would now be justified in purging from the face of his creation every trace of misery and decay. If he waits it is but to save more souls. See, the universal reconciliation of all things has not yet been fully accomplished, but it, the foundation for it has been laid. It just hasn't been fully applied. The reality is that the peace is available, but it has to be received. And many, if not most, continue to reject it. So the full outworking of reconciliation awaits its future fulfillment uh, a quote from Wayne House who writes a distinction must be made between reconciliation and salvation reconciliation removes the barrier between God and man and opens the potential for a new type of, uh, type of relationship between them 
It takes down the barrier. It opens the door. Salvation moves us through that door. It embraces the gift that God has, has given. Now that brings us to the end of uh, the Christ hymn. And Paul goes on to write, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet now he has reconciled you in his fleshly body through, through death. So while much of creation awaits the experiential reality of reconciliation, the, those in Colossae had begun to reap the benefits of it. You know, he reminds them that here were men and women who had once been alienated from God in their minds. They were hostile towards him. Their lives were engaged in evil deeds. But now, as they had looked to Christ, all this had changed. As they had by faith lived as those who were reconciled, Christ had begun to create in them a life that was holy and blameless and free from accusation. Here, Paul sets forth the potential that every believer has if he really takes uh, and utilizes the provisions that Christ's reconciliation has made possible. This is our potential. And I think we need to come to look at it that way. I know I had a dear friend in Ireland. He, he made the comment one time, and I think it's a, a good comment. He said, all too often in Christian circles, we talk about what we should be doing rather than what we could be doing. If you say, we should be holy and blameless and should be above reproach, what does that do? It throws a burden of guilt on our shoulders. But if we look at it and say, look, in Christ, I have the potential to live a life that is holy and blameless and above reproach. This is what I could be. But in order to live that kind of life, Paul says, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under the heaven, in which I, Paul, was made a minister. Now there are those who look at this passage, and they say that it teaches uh, that perseverance in faith is a condition of final salvation. That if I'm really saved, I will persevere. I like Zane Hodges' response to this. He says, it's clear that condition is the only appropriate word here. There is nothing to support the view that perseverance in faith is an inevitable outcome of true salvation. On the contrary, the text reads like a warning. The warning is that if we want our lives to be changed completely, 
If you and me want to become men and women whose lives really stand out, are set apart, who, again, blameless doesn't mean sinless. If it did, we wouldn't have any elders in our church because that's one of the qualifications of elders, you know. Uh, uh, I don't think Ron claims to be sinless. If he does, he doesn't need to be an elder. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we need to ask Betty. <laughs> but, you know, if we want our lives to be described in this way, we've got to continue on in the gospel. Continue to appropriate uh, that which is ours in Christ. See, this is important warning for the Colossian believers. Because they were being confronted by false teachers who were trying to move them away from Christ. And Paul says, the key is to continue in Christ. Not to be moved away from it. And as, as I pointed out before, Paul, when he uses the word gospel, has a lot more depth to it than we often have. It's the fullness of what Christ has accomplished. Now we're out of time and that does bring us at least to a good breaking point because next time we'll start in on the next section uh, in this uh, letter in which Paul starts speaking about his ministry. And Paul tells us that he preached Christ. <laughs> That's, that was the focus of his ministry. It wasn't some sort of a religious system or anything. Paul preached Christ. Why? Because he was convinced that everything we needed was to be found in him. Okay, we're out of time. Let me close in prayer. Lord, we do thank you just for the fullness of your provision in Christ. Lord, I thank you for the potential we have. And Lord, may we increasingly look to Christ and let him transform us. For it's in his precious name we pray. Amen.